We are uh, continuing our series, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living with Grace and Truth in a Culture of Compromise. And uh, this is, a, this is a, a very timely series. I think we live in a time uh, where, where there's a magnifying glass on the church, uh, on followers of Jesus. And we, we talked about this a little bit the first week, how, how we're, we're kind of in, the, in this place where we're living in between grace and truth, and there's a tension. And, and followers of Jesus don't always live in that tension very well. We have some people on one extreme side uh, that are all about the truth, and it doesn't come across in any loving or gracious kind of way. And we would look at that and then compare that to Jesus and say, well, that doesn't really look or smell or sound like Jesus. But then there's other folks who are on the other side of the spectrum that think, and Jesus is all about love and it's all about grace, and, and they, they end up not standing for anything uh, in the name of tolerance. And uh, Jesus doesn't invite us to tolerance, but he, he also invites us to stand for something. And, and so we would we look at folks that, uh, you know, just have a bit of a passivity in this world and say, you know, that doesn't really look or sound or smell like Jesus at all either. Uh, and so I think we're called as followers of Jesus to live in this tension, this place in between, uh, of living with a conviction and truth, but also living in this radical, uh, gracious, loving way uh, that, our, uh, that Jesus, our King, kind of demonstrated for us. We want to stand firm and we want to love well. And uh, this, we're going to talk about loving well next week. Uh, and today we're talking about standing, standing firm. And it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. And so we see here Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 16 about this, this tension, this balance between standing firm and loving well, that we are called as followers of Jesus to do uh, both end. And many of us feel or we think that these two are mutually exclusive. I can't love well if I'm going to stand firm. Or I can't stand firm if I'm going to love well, but, but we're called to both. Called to both. And so we're talking about standing today. And last week we, we talked about Babylon's motto, I am, and there's none besides me. And we live in a bit of a selfie culture that tries to elevate self. And Babylon uh, is not just a locality, although it was that, it, it's modern day Iraq. Uh, but last week we introduced this, the biblical concept of Babylon, not just as a locality, but as a mentality. And it's a mentality that we see uh, from the beginning of Scripture all the way uh, to the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation. And the idea behind uh, the Babylon mentality is the elevation of self and the de-elevation of God. We live in the selfie culture that loves to promote self. And Babylon just kind of comes alongside that and says, Amen. Promote yourself. Make yourself famous. It's all about what you think, what you desire, what you want. And so the first tactic of, of the enemy is to elevate yourself above God. To say, I am and there's none besides me. And the second tactic, which we're going to talk about later today, uh, is, is, to, is a tactic that actually promotes us to stop worshiping God. So it begins with the elevation of self, and then it begins with the worship of other things other than God. Uh, but we live in this selfie world, and I was, I was riding my bike this past week in, in the blizzard, and uh, I stopped in the middle of the blizzard just to take a picture of myself. I mean, I joked about this last week, how I, I don't understand selfies, but I still do them, and, I'm, I'm out, and I took about 20, on, I'm out there on the hill, all by myself, my lonesome self. What a loner. 
And uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if I just take pictures of myself because I'm I feel so lonely that I need to share myself with somebody else. But so my freezing beard. I was breaking trail through all the snow on my bike. It was it was a good time. But but you go on Instagram, you go on Facebook. It's all about self. Uh, and I'm uh, I'm to blame just as much as anybody. Uh, but we're looking today at. The next step, not just elevation of self, but now moving into worshiping other things. Because once we choose to elevate self, that usually comes along with worshiping one of three false gods that I'm going to highlight today. False gods, or they're referred to as idols through scripture. And the first false, false god is mammon. And Jesus talked about mammon, if you remember. Uh, the spirit of mammon is, is the god of possessions and greed. Worshippers of mammon kind of have this motto that it's never enough. That's kind of the mantra of mammon worshipers. It's never enough. The same mindset manifests itself today in many people who pursue riches assuming that this will make them happy. Calgary is a prime example of this. People that just pursue whatever's next, the next best thing, the newest thing, the brightest thing, the shiniest thing, thinking that this is the piece that's going to get them happy, but they find that it's, it's never enough. There's always more. Mammon always tries to squeeze into our hearts in place of God. And Jesus said that you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. It's okay to have money. It's great to have money, but money can't have you. And that, that's the difference. And for many of us, money has us. We don't have money, but it, money has us. It's owning us. The second false god that we see throughout Scripture is the god of Baal. And this is the God of power and the roots of all pride. He's all about self-achievement, self-sufficiency. It's all about you. And you remember back in the day, some of you young people won't remember back in the day, but the, you know the crazy fun mirrors that, that you guys used to go to and it used to make you look way buffer than you actually were? That, that's kind of what Baal does. And now we have apps for that where you take pictures of yourself and it, it, it gives you muscles. Um, but that's, what, that's the idea of Baal, that it just, it just beefs up the self. It reflects this image back to its worshipers, saying, you don't need God, you're strong enough, you're in control enough, you can do this on your own. We have the same attitude today in the way that we assume that we can control our lives if we stay busy. It's the dri driving force behind workaholism, our out-of-control schedules, some of you are at work, and while you're at work, all you can think about is that you need to spend more time at home. And then when you're at home, all you can think about is how you need to spend more time at work. This is the effects of the worship of Baal. That is never, you're never going to have enough time in the day to appease the God of Baal. And some of you are working 10, 12-hour days, and you still feel like there's just not enough hours in my day. Baal is alive and well. Third god, the god of Asherah. And this is the goddess of pleasure. Sometimes it's called Ashtoreth, as well as the, you know, this, god, this goddess intensifies uh, the lustful feelings of our flesh. The idols have been around for centuries, and whether it's called Asherah or Ashtoreth, or in, the, uh, in, in Roman mythology, was called, the god was called Venus, uh, or in Greek mythology, it was called Aphrodite. It's the same God, the, this God of pleasure. And I don't need to cite the latest statistics on rape or human trafficking or pornography 
or any of these things for you to know that this God is also alive and well in our culture. And I, I was chatting with some, weeks, some folks after last week's message and uh, even about uh, the importance of highlighting that this, sometimes we just think, hey, this is a guy thing that, uh, you know, guys worship this God. Well, it, it, is, a, it is both male and female. Uh, you know, there was 125 million copies of Fifty Shades of Grey uh, sold to soccer moms in 2015. I think all three of these gods are alive and well in our culture. Money, power, pleasure. Mammon, Baal, Ashtoreth. So let's think just a bit of a Bible survey here about the creation story. You know, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food, the scripture says. So we see this idea of greed, this idea of mammon, even in the garden. And pleasing to the eye, the appeal to pleasure. And desirable for gaining wisdom, the bail emphasis on self-empowerment. She took some and ate it. There in the beginning of the story, these three concepts already there. When we think of the temptations of Christ... We see that the devil comes to tempt Jesus and, and he attempts him with this appetite-fueled temptation to turn stones into bread, appease your appetite, the Asherah, followed by an encouragement to show off his power and throw himself down, show people how powerful you are. You, know, you see the themes of Baal there. And finally, the promise that all of this land I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. If Jesus would just bow down and, and give in to the temptation of wanting more. These are the false gods that Jesus had to confront. And I think that these are the false gods that we all have to confront. When we choose to be worshipers of Jesus, we will always find ourselves in confrontation with these three false gods in some way. One of the most popular and powerful stories in the book of Daniel, and if you missed the first couple of weeks, uh, just to... Just so you know, this series, we're looking at uh, stories from the book of Daniel uh, as our main text. And one of the most popular stories is Daniel chapter 3, and it's a story about worship. And so we're going to take time uh, and read through this story this morning. In Daniel chapter 3, it begins, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so that's, that statue is 90 feet high by 9 feet wide, approximately. Which was quite a big statue in that time. Uh, and then he summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So he sets up this image and, and implores people to come to the dedication of it. And we'll see that he's inviting people to worship the image that he created. And what we worship is really important. And we've talked about this at SunWest before, but what we become what we behold. We become what we behold. And so, without getting too far down a rabbit trail, think of this for a second, that, it, that we as human beings were created in the image of God, yes? When we worship something When we worship the created other than the creator, we become less than human, less than we're created to be. 
Let me say it again. We're created in the image of God, and so we were created for God to be the object of our worship. But Romans 1 talks about our tendencies to worship the created rather than the creator, and when we worship the created rather than the creator, we become less than human because we become what we behold. So we were created in the image of God, to worship God. Daniel 3.3, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and stood before it. And we'll see from the beginning of time until now, these false gods, these idols, are hidden in images and sounds. They're hidden images and sounds. You think in our culture today, the, the amount of sounds and images that we are bombarded with, and we think that these are just benign or unimportant things. You know, our phones, our TVs, our computers, advertisements. And, and you'll find when you, when you start to have eyes to see that the image of Mammon and Baal and Ashtoreth are found in the sounds and images around us. You know, this is why there was, there was such a movement years ago for people not to have anything non-Christian. You know, it was like the, it was the destiny of every young Christian boy to only have Amy Grant albums. That's, you know, I remember in Bible school that there, there, there we, we were called to kind of repent of all our world things. There's a bunch of my friends that took all of their, you know, evil CDs and burned them at, the, at Bible school. And I, and I was just too heathen for that. I was like, the devil can't have all the good music, can he? And so I had, I had my albums that I was not about to get rid of. But he, he, even the spirit of that was, you know, this recognition that, you know, often the enemy comes to us uh, kind of hidden between images and sounds in our culture. And, and we do need to be aware of that. Um, but... Uh, Anyways, I, I believe that God came, Jesus came and uh, can redeem rock and roll too, not just me. So can I get an amen to that? All right. Okay, so Daniel 3 verse 6. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the what? The sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Remember, what you worship is important. You become what you behold. And so... As worshipers of Yahweh, of, of God, Daniel and his friends found them, him, them in, a, in a point of conflict with the world around them. Bow down to worship what I'm called by, by the world around me to worship, knowing that there was consequences to that decision, or do I actually stand and stay true to Yahweh as my object of worship? At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. 
And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to stop there just really quickly. Furious with rage. This is the response of Nebuchadnezzar when the worshipers of Yahweh would not kneel down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar set set up. Let me ask you this question. Would you say furious with rage? Do you think that has a tendency or the potential to describe followers of Jesus today? When you look at the story, those that are filled with rage and anger are not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but King Nebuchadnezzar. That when, when people did not do what he asked them to do, he responded in incredible rage. And unfortunately, when I look at the news feed uh, on my phone and on the, the television, often I see people that claim to be lovers of Jesus furious with rage. And going back to the truth and grace tension, lovers of Jesus that have actually forgotten that they've been saved by grace and they don't know how to extend that to others and they, they live with, with a self-righteousness that actually starts to come out in rage when the world around them refuses to bow down to what they're worshiping. And I just want to ask that reflective question, does that sound or look more like Nebuchadnezzar or like Daniel and his friends? Well, notice Daniel and his friend's response is far different. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? If we are worshipers of Mammon, Baal, Asherah, we will find ourselves in a confrontation with culture. Sorry, if we're worshipers of Yahweh, not worshipers of those. We will find ourselves in a confrontation with culture. There's no way around it. And this is the confrontation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in in the story. What will they do? It's a confrontation that they feel powerless towards. They, there, there are powers beyond their control at work here, and they are subject to whatever is happening in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And so we need to recognize that standing firm takes courage. That when there's confrontations against powers and authorities that are actually beyond your control, you will be challenged to stand, and that standing is going to take courage. Standing firm takes courage. And courage isn't the person who's afraid of nothing. It's the person who acknowledges that there's fear, but they won't bow down to their fear. That's courage. It's okay to be afraid, It's okay to not know what's going to happen, but is that 
fear going to rule your heart or will something beyond that fear rule your heart? That's courage. Courage is in the absence of fear. Courage is standing firm in spite of what fear you might feel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So notice the difference in response for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego versus King Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't lead a rebellion. They didn't threaten. They didn't condemn the king for building his own idol. They didn't argue. They didn't start a social media thread bashing Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. They didn't defend their position even. They said, we don't need to defend our position. They just chose to live under the conviction of being worshipers of Yahweh and then lived with the results of those consequences. Where did they get this resolve? How how were they able to stand firm in the face of fear. Well, just to go back and review very quickly, we we know that Babylon tried to rename them. They knew who they were despite the Babylonians attempting to mock their identities and rename them. We also learned that they had settled what they believed before the moment they were taken captive. We talked about convictions. They knew their convictions. And if we wait to, for confrontation or conflict or tension to figure out what our convictions are, it's probably too late. So we need to know what our convictions are. And then they chose to worship courageously, even in the face of idol worship going around them, and were willing to live with the consequences regardless of what would happen. You know, sometimes our idols aren't as clear as, you know, a statue But as we talked about with those three false gods, I don't think they're any less obvious in our world than having a physical statue around us. We all bow down to something. And worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. If if you want to know what you worship, it's quite easy. Look at your calendar and look at your bank statement. One of the The two greatest commodities in our culture are your time and your money. And where you place those things is is an indication of what you value. Just follow the trail. See where it leads you. This will challenge you. It will lead you to think about the reality of what you worship. So here's the response. We believe that God's able to save us. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God can save us, but even if he doesn't, this, this is the summary. King Nebuchadnezzar, ain't read my lips. Ain't gonna happen. Read my lips, okay? Ain't gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. Regardless of what happens to us, we will not bow down and worship. See, as followers of the Almighty God, worshipers of the Almighty God, we actually get to live life in a win-win scenario. This is how Paul describes it. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Jesus. 
If I'm going to die, praise the Lord. I get to be with Jesus. It's a win-win. Come on. Many of us live in a lose-lose kind of world. I'll tell you about a lose-lose situation. And when I was, in a, when I was a junior high kid, um, a girl challenged me to a fight on the playground, and I said yes. <laughs> now tell me, in what world is that... There's no good scenario that comes out of that, right, as a junior high kid. I beat her up, I'm a loser. I get beat up, I'm a loser. That's a, it's a lose-lose. I'm not going to tell you what happened in that story. That's a lose-lose. But I'll tell you what, when we worship Baal, it's a lose-lose. Because he's always going to ask more from you than what you can give. And you're going to get more powerful, you're going to have more status, but you're going to find that it's still not enough. It's a lose-lose. If you worship Ashereth, you're going to find it's a lose-lose. It's going to create havoc in your relationships, in your family, in the people you love most. And you'll find that you'll never be able to satisfy it. No matter how much you indulge the pleasures that, that you want to live out, it will not ever satisfied or be enough. It's a lose-lose. Mammon. You know, we have a whole spectrum, an economic spectrum here at SunWest. But there's one reality for all of us is that, that Jesus is greater than mammon. And all of us, whether we're rich or poor, can find ourselves worshiping mammon, the thought that if I just had a little bit more, it would be enough. You know, whether you find yourself at the, the bottom of the economic ladder or the top of it, that lie still will penetrate your heart, that it, there's just a little bit more. Well, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. It's a lose-lose. Following Jesus, we get invited to live a win-win kind of life. To live as Christ, to die as gain. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Jesus. And that is enough. And then if I'm going to die, then I get to be with Jesus. So uh, that gives confidence and courage that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian leader in World War II, uh, was, just finished teaching a Bible study in, and he was in, in prison at this point, and then they were taking him to the gallows to hang him, and on, on his way out the door, he said, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. And it was that courage that allowed Bonhoeffer to stand up in a world that was bowing down in Nazi Germany and say, you can take my life, but he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Your courage takes faith. And I use the word faith very intentionally because faith is being sure of what we hope for and what we don't yet see. Faith is not focused on what you're standing against, but what you're standing for. I think we live in a world where the world knows Jesus followers far more because of what they're standing against than what we're standing for, and this is a shame. Faith means we're standing for something. We're standing for God. And if we don't stand for something, we can fall for anything. See, 
it's not about being against anything. I, I don't hate culture. I don't hate a political party. I, I don't hate, you know, fill in the blank. What I, what I am about is that I love God. That is what I'm for. I stand for God. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when his attitude towards them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He got mad. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. I, I don't know what word was translated trousers, but I just can't stop thinking about um, like overalls. Uh, guys with turbans with overalls on. That's what I see. That's what I see. It's, an odd, uh, it's an odd picture in my mind. Um, so they were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that, and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet with him in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Come on. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany. And so what that means is that this fourth person in the fire, who looks like a son of the gods, is Jesus. You say, well, how that could be? This is before Jesus kind of came to earth. Well, Jesus, as we learn in John 1, was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Everything was created through Jesus. And we have appearances of Jesus, God with flesh on, coming to earth throughout Scripture, not just in between Christmas and Easter. So it's kind of like you can picture Jesus sitting beside God the Father, and he just, he, just, he just loves to mess with people throughout history. He's like, God, I just want to go down and mess with King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. But only, he only got a couple hours. Okay. So just goes down and jumps in the furnace with these guys. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Here's what, is, what happens. When we choose to worship God in a culture of compromise, it's going to inspire others. And we see that King Nebuchadnezzar's heart changed not because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so convincing in their arguments. It's because they were firm in their worship. Regardless of what was going on around them. We often talk about being a witness to God. Well, the, the word witness comes from the Greek word martus. Can everybody say martus? This is where we get the word martyr from. And I want you to think about this for a second. We get the word martyr 
We get the word witness from the word martyr, and you can see the thought process. Someone testifies to who Jesus is, to the Messiah that gave up their life for them, for you and I. And when people are willing to worship God, even at the expense of their own life, they became known as martyrs because those are the folks that testified most accurately to the character that they saw in Jesus. When we worship God above all else, it might lead, it will lead us into conflict. And for some, that means the cost of the very lives. But throughout church history, those martyrs have been the greatest encouragement and witnesses for believers because they testify most accurately to the self-giving, self-sacrificing God that we worship. Standing firm inspires others. You want to change culture, stop arguing, stop fighting, keep worshiping. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. So, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, he gave glory to God. He became a Christian. He got saved. But theologians talk about salvation and sanctification. He wasn't quite sanctified yet, okay? He's like, I worship Yahweh. I worship that God. And if no one else worships him, then cut them all up into pieces, okay? It's like, uh, okay, you, the heart... Heart transformations take some time, right? So we, we can attest to that. Be cut into pieces in their houses, be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Did SunWest, we're, we're more than a gathering to do some camp sing-along songs on a Sunday. We believe that God's called us to provide homes for people that don't have homes. You know, Colton just gave a highlight of El Salvador, and we got a Mexico mission trip meeting happening after service. I want to return to one idea here as I close my message, and this is, is the difference between standing against something and standing for something. We want, we want to be known as a people that stand for something. You know, the fact that we were able to, to build between 20 and 40 houses uh, on this mission trip is a testament of something that we're for. And we believe God has called us to speak up for those who don't have a voice and exercise influence for people that don't have any power, that feel powerless. We believe that God wants us to multiply disciples and gathering and, have, have, and plant more churches. We believe that God wants to provide a place to belong for anybody who doesn't know where they fit, that God is inviting them into the family of God. We want to be for something. We want to leave a fingerprint, not because we're great, but because we want people to respond in the way that King Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, I see your God, I see who you worship, and I see what he's all about, and I want to be about that. I want to be for that. And we have a choice in culture that we can be a voice or we can be an echo. I think God's calling us to be a voice and not just an echo of what's around us, but to stand up for something. I don't want to be known for what we're against. And unfortunately, most of the church, in our, like I said, in our world is known for what they're against. You know, and this comes down to a bit of my personal philosophy of ministry, and, and it, it was seen often even as I was a youth pastor for, for many years. You know, parents would want me to go out for 
coffee with their kid, and my, you know, my kid's doing all the stuff, and I want him to stop doing that. And, uh, and often the parents were disappointed when I meet with their kid. He goes, I did, you didn't tell them to stop it. You didn't tell them it was bad or wrong. You know, I, I think if our relationship with God is, is based on just trying to live right and not do wrong, then we, we missed out on the beauty and the full life that Jesus invites us to, to be for something. That he's on mission in this world and we get to join him in that. You know, that's why a number of years ago, you know, the, the, the drug cartel scene in Mexico was, was uh, at, at quite a high that it, it hadn't been at in decades. And there was border shootings happening, and we were coming up to their annual Mexico trip, and Colton said, don't tell the story. You know, don't you know that the first Mexico meeting is today? Um, so we might have the most lowly attended Mexico meeting ever. But So we, we decided that year, you know, we prayed about it, and it was like, you know what, we, we're still going to go. Because we, we can live a life and say, you know, we're, you know, we're afraid and we don't want to put our kids in that situation. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a place for wisdom, but there's also a place where our children learn about what's important by the little decisions that we make. And, and I felt as a pastor at that time that we needed to make a statement and say, you know, we're for this. And, uh, you know, we obviously consulted with the ministry down there that we went a part of. And we agreed together that we would, we would still go. And I remember when we were on that trip, uh, you know, we, our bus got stopped, and uh, I don't know if I told this story before, so I'm telling it 10 years later. This was 10 years ago, keep in mind. Uh, our, bus, our bus got stopped, and I remember before I was going, and I, w- I read the news about how, you know, some of the guys in, drug, in the drug cartel dress up in, uh, you know, in police outfits, and they were kind of raiding uh, tourists that were coming across from America. Our bus got stopped, and all these armed men in police gear get on with their uh, machine guns onto our bus. And uh, how, how many of you guys were on that trip? How many of you guys remember this? All right. Everybody else was too afraid to come back to SunWest. We got a couple. Oh, we got Sam there. Okay. Oh, Dave was there. Okay, so I remember me and a youth pastor at that point being like, bad choice, Matt. We should have stayed home. To live as Christ, to die as gain. What are we living for? Are we just living to be safe, to be comfortable, to worship Baal and Astra and uh, Mammon? Or are we actually living for Yahweh? Are we living for a call? Are we living for a purpose? It says this, Jesus says this, and this is how Eugene Peterson phrases it in the message. Stand up for me against world opinion and I'll stand up for you before my Father in heaven. There are about 16 New Testament references to Jesus or the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand. Here in Colossians 3.1, we said, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is always seated at the right hand of God. There's about 16 references to this. All of them referring to Jesus being seated. Jesus' place in heaven In your New Testament, Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And the truth is, he does stand at one moment in the New Testament. Just once. And that is in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr, Stephen, chooses to stand for Jesus 
in the midst of persecution in the culture around him. And, it, and Stephen says, it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw Jesus standing there. When I stand, Jesus stands with me. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided to stand, they were surprised by the presence of Jesus in the furnace with them. They chose to worship God in a culture that was choosing to worship everything other than God. They didn't set out to try and change culture. They didn't set out to try and convince everybody what was right and what was wrong. They just remained as faithful worshipers in a culture that had moved away from worshiping God. And I believe that when we choose to worship God, despite what's going around in our culture, that Jesus stands with us, that Jesus is for us. When we are for Jesus, he is for us. We don't need to be against everything. We just need to be for Jesus. We need to invite people to Jesus. When our culture bows down to Mam and Baal and Asherah, we, we will stand for God. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes as we close the service. Just wherever you're seated, to, to close your eyes and And I want you to consider whether you need to make a decision to stand and, and just a decision in your own heart. You know, there, there's, a, there's a time for making public decisions to stand for Jesus and we do that in baptism and some other things. But there's often moments where we need to take a stand in our heart and say, you know, Jesus, in this culture of pleasure and money and power, I want to refuse to bow down to those things and I want to be known for standing for, for you. And with your eyes closed, if, if you're in a place this morning where you know, God is prompting you to take a stand, I just want, to, want you to raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. And I want to pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for the promise that when we stand, that you stand with us. Not because we're so great or we're so perfect, but because you're so gracious. Lord, for, forgive us for those times and those places in our life where we've bowed down to other things other than you, where we worship the created other than the creator. Lord, we thank you that when we worship you, when we put you first, Lord, that you give us what we need. And so, Lord, we choose to stand. We choose to prioritize our life around you and your kingdom. God, that you would be made famous in our lives. Lord, that the cultures and the atmospheres around us would change, not because people know what we're against or we've been so convincing in our arguments but Lord we've been so convincing in our love and our worship we've been uncompromising in our convictions to put you first Lord I pray for courage I pray for those who who find themselves in this point of conflict which will always happen when we worship you Lord I pray that you would give them courage beyond their circumstance that you would give them faith to see a world other than the one that they're living in 
and that we would live in light of, the, of your coming kingdom, not in, the, not in light of the kingdom that we live in on this earth. So would you give us that heavenly perspective in Jesus' name? Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, if you are for us, who can be against us? What an amazing promise. Lord, I pray that we would live with faith, with eternity in mind. Lord, that we would live in such a way that we could echo Paul's words that says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm going to live in a win-win kind of situation. And Lord, we thank you that when we choose to worship you, to put you first, that we enter into a win-win kind of life. And Lord, I pray that for those who feel like they're not living that life, Lord, that you would that you would meet with them where they're at. I thank you that you are God, that you know each person's story as they walk in. Lord, you know what they need. And I pray that they would sense your spirit beside them, whispering to them, inviting them to a greater life. And so, Jesus, we just say yes to you. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord, it is our joy to worship you because that is what we were created for. And God, when we worship you as we were created in your image, we actually become the people that you created us to be. What a joy that is. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Have a great week. Uh, We'll see you guys next week as we wrap up this series.